Welcome to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association, and it's supported by the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. This episode, our co-producer Matt Barlow is joined by Dr. Rick Smith and Dr. Megan Warren to talk about their work, the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. The interview was recorded in Adelaide, Tandanya, on the land of the Ghana peoples. Rick Smith is a biocultural anthropologist, studying how power and inequality become molecular. He completed his PhD in 2017 at the University of Texas and is currently a postdoctoral fellow with the Newcomb Institute for Computational Science and the Department of Anthropology at Dartmouth. He's also a research affiliate with the Indigenous STS Lab in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. His work focuses on the ways that ancient urbanism and imperialism shape genetic and epigenetic variation across ethnic and gender divides. His research also focuses on the genetic and ecological impacts of settler colonialism in North America. Megan Warren is a professor in the School of Social Sciences at the University of Adelaide and has held academic positions in anthropology, gender studies, public health, and psychiatry. Her research investigates gender and class differences in obesity, public understandings of obesity science, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander views on health, eating, and intergenerational transmission, phenomenological approaches to embodiment, and the nature of desire in disordered eating. Much of her research is interdisciplinary and works across biosocial approaches to cultural practices, embodiment, and health. She has recently published a book titled Fatness, Obesity, and Disadvantage in the Australian Suburbs, Unpalatable Politics, co-authored with fellow University of Adelaide faculty member, Dr. Tanya Zivkovic. Well, thanks for joining me here for this little chat. We like to start the podcast with some background on how each of you became anthropologists or encountered the world of anthropology. You're both very interdisciplinary, so Mm -hmm. those stories might be a bit entwined. Well, thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. In regards to that question, I was um, doing an undergraduate degree in visual arts at Flinders University in Adelaide and... I wanted to do anthropology, but it wasn't actually offered at that university. So I became mm. a cross-enrolled student and would trek across to Adelaide University to attend anthropology lectures. And from the first moment, I loved it. And I remember one of my lecturers, Dean Fergie, said to the whole class, anthropology will change the way you are in the world. And I remember to myself rolling my eyes going... Well, I don't think so. (laughs) But in fact, that's precisely what happened. Mm -hmm. So across that undergraduate degree in anthropology, I then moved to do an honours degree in anthropology and I did visual anthropology. Again, I looked at Mm. Western Desert dot paintings, Indigenous art, and ran a critique of the apolitical nature of the ways in which this art was commodified and commercialised in Western contexts. And so I think ideally for me, I, my path was I wanted to work in a, in a museum space. And at that time, there were no postgraduate degrees in Australia. I was looking overseas. I finished my honours year and a research position came up in psychiatry. And I applied for that and got that. So I sort of moved into the more health field. 
and had the opportunity to work with some fantastic anthropologists, mm. Rod Lucas and Rob Barrett, and that's how I really mm. fell into the health sort of slash medical anthropology space. Yeah, how about you? Yeah, so I want to say thanks for having me too. It's yeah. nice to have this conversation here with Megan as well. So I had a rather circuitous path into anthropology as well. I think it's maybe the nature of interdisciplinary work mm-hmm. is that we find it as a productive space to bring the multiple ways of thinking together. But um, my background is in molecular biology. I was a first-gen college student. You know, what do you do when you're a first-gen college student? You become a lawyer or a doctor. And those are the kinds of career paths that I was aware of at the time and had chose biology and sort of pre-med as a way to think about health outcomes and the ways that they were impacting the communities that I'm from. And then really was just enamored by genetics and molecular biology in undergrad, but very quickly became disenchanted with the ways in which biologists engage with issues of health, in particular geneticists. And some mm-hmm. people were sort of working outside or adjacent to the sort of medical industrial complex in the U.S., whose ideas about where disease come from are, I found to be very essentialist. So coming from a community that is a sort of at the losing end of who has access to resources and who uh, has access to care, I found these very essentialist genetic arguments around why people get sick to not be uh, compelling. Mm-hmm. So geneticists, at least then, and I think there's still this legacy within genetics of think- using a very... Um, a model of genetic diversity that is race-based and is sort of blind to the influence of power and inequality at race, class, and gender levels. Mm-hmm. And found that it was just, while the tools, I was kind of obsessed with the kind of tools of genetics, the frameworks in which genetics operates, I found to not be able to answer the questions that I have, which is, how do people get sick when they are on the losing end of inequality? So I began, you know, sort of looking for other places to use the knowledge that I had and the tools that I had to work kind of differently around these questions. And I found the work of Deborah Bolnick while I was finishing my master's in molecular biology in Chicago. And the work of Kim Tallbear, an indigenous feminist who are thinking about how genetics has been applied to indigenous peoples Mm -hmm. and their racialization. And it it was like a light switch for me. It was like, Mm -hmm. this is the place where I can do, not that anthropology doesn't have its own history with regard to racialization, Mm -hmm. but that it was a more hopeful space than molecular biology was for me at the time. So I contacted Deborah Bolnick and asked her, you know, pitched her my zany plan of using the tools of genetics to think about how imperialism works and how genetic and epigenetic and health differences are manifested as a consequence of power. And Mm -hmm. she went for it. And was able to put together a committee in anthropology that allowed me to combine the tools of genetics with critical theories of power that come out of queer, feminist, and indigenous STS, so science and technology studies. So anthropology then for me became this place of merging these separate sets of tools or whatever tools that I needed to answer the question that I have without constraint, the kinds of constraints that I had within the discipline of biology. Mm, it was kind of the contact zone for those things yeah, for you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and this is American or U.S. forefield anthropology. And not every program is like that in the U.S., mm-hmm. but at least the program that I was in let me sort of play mm-hmm. across the boundaries of these uh, mm-hmm. ways of looking at the body and history. Mm. Which I think is mm-hmm. interesting because Rick and I were having this conversation earlier because mm-hmm. the, the legacy of anthropology in Australia at least is quite different, you know, modelled on a on British anthropology. So the forefield is not 
obvious or apparent here. There mm -hmm. are some places that do have the ANU, for example, but mm -hmm. certainly in my undergraduate training in anthropology, you know, even the architecture of the university was structured so you would never have an opportunity to cross paths with a biologist or a life scientist. Those things are slowly changing, which is terrific, mm -hmm. but the siloing within anthropology between the social and the biological Mm -hmm. was always very clear and quite antagonistic. Mm -hmm. And so th reflecting on my experiences of working in places like psychiatry or public health, where you are often asked, well, what's an anthropologist doing mm -hmm, here, mm -hmm. uh, forces you to actually articulate what it is we're doing, how we're doing the sorts of questions we're asking methodologically, uh, mm -hmm. how we do those things. And I've always enjoyed that challenge of actually having to be in that space and to articulate what we're doing and to uh, collaborate theoretically, methodologically, mm -hmm. where that's possible. Of course, it's a challenge as well. It's no easy mm. feat. Mm -hmm. no, no, yeah. I would say not in the US either, even yeah. though we do have this history of four-field anthropology. It's quite variable in terms of where you're able to sort of play across these silos yeah, and where yeah. you're not, right? So, I mean, feminist and queer theory, to me, are this sort of second site mm. of ways in which people are you know, following the sort of threads of their questions across these disciplinary divides, right? In some places it works better than others, but I've been fortunate to have people who are at least open and willing <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. to let me work across those boundaries in ways that my work required, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's like encountering those moments where you have to make mm. explicit what's been implicit mm -hmm. for you for so mm -hmm, long, mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. like this. And, Absolutely. Um, so epigenetics is somewhat of a hot topic at the moment. I think precisely for some of the reasons that we've just been talking about is you have to sort of make explicit some things that are implicit. But what do you see as the promise or the potential risks involved with this kind of research? And for the uninitiated, what is epigenetics? We might turn that question around a little bit, if that's okay, to talk about what epigenetics is. It's many things. And I'm <laughs> going to hand over to Rick because I think one of the things we would want to underscore is the uncertainty hmm. uh, around epigenetics mm -hmm. and the multiple discourses and realities that this word has. Certainly it's very fashionable, but... It depends who you speak to. Mm, yes. mm -hmm. yeah. well, I don't think even epigeneticists agree on what epigenetics no, is. Mm -hmm. so, um, kind of like anthropology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's multiple levels of mess that we're dealing with here. Yeah, so epigenetics is a field that studies, rather than looking at the DNA sequence itself and how the underlying DNA sequence leads to biological features that we have, epigenetics instead looks at how the underlying DNA sequence is used or uh, regulated. And so epigenetics is a field that studies heritable marks, marks that are added to the DNA sequence without changing the underlying DNA sequence itself that can be heritable at various layers of, and how it's heritable is also another matter of debate, but that at some level they're heritable. And so uh, epigenetic marks and these heritable marks that change how DNA is used or change how active DNA is and how it functions can happen at multiple levels. So it can happen at mm. the DNA level where DNA marks are added directly to the DNA backbone. It can happen at the protein level where marks are added to proteins that are interacting with the DNA and determine how closed or open the DNA is to be uh, used. And it can also happen at the RNA level. So RNA is another molecule related to DNA that can interact with the DNA sequence and change how it's behaving. 
but the vast majority of research that's been done in epigenetics has been on um, something called cytosine methylation, which is a DNA level modification. That's been the one that's most widely studied in both animals and humans. And what happens with DNA methylation is that a mark is added directly to the DNA backbone, to cytosines. So cytosines is one of the four DNA letters, A, A, C, T, and G. And when that happens near a gene, it can change the way that gene behaves. So it might mean that that gene is more expressed, that gene's activity is heightened, or that gene activity is lessened, or that gene activity is not moderated, or, or whatever. And so this has a lot of functions. So for example, every cell in your body, your whole body has the same DNA sequence, almost, for the most part. But the way that your neuron uses the genome is quite distinct from the way a blood cell or the way a skin cell might use the same DNA. And this comes down to differences. And a key function of DNA methylation is to differentiate tissues that have the same DNA sequence to different functions. So a neuron is using a very different set of genes than a blood cell is or a or skin cell. Mm-hmm. Or ne- exactly. Mm-hmm. And these come down to these marks that are being added and subtracted from the genome to determine what genes a particular cell is using. So that's one of the main functions of epigenetics. But in my research, in, in thinking about how epigenetic research is related to health, I am interested, so another way that epigenetic marks can happen, or these marks can be added or subtracted from the DNA, is in response to lived experience. So if someone has uh, diet is disrupted in some way, uh, if there's famine that someone experiences, if they have early life trauma, or for that matter, trauma throughout any point in the life course, from fetal development all the way through adulthood and beyond, that can also change what portions of DNA have these marks attached. So for example, if someone has experienced early life with trauma, maybe they um, were a fetus in development and they their mother was experiencing a stressful environment, or maybe they themselves were experiencing a stressful environment as a young child, that will result in uh, the hypermethylation or the addition of methyl marks to genes related to stress response. So the outcome of that is the person's stress responses are heightened and more prolonged compared to people that did not have that kind of violent exposure earlier in life. And that comes down to the way that circulating levels of hormones are regulated by these sets of genes that have been methylated. That's a fantastic explanation. Mm -hmm. I was recalling when I was introduced to developmental origins of health of disease, which is, for me, I see this as a precursor to epigenetics. You know, there's a whole history. I think Mm -hmm. some people think that epigenetics is new. It's not new, but I think discursively we're seeing it in the public more. So I was introduced to this thing called DOHAD, which is the acronym for Developmental Origins of Health and Disease. And uh, having worked in public health with some fantastic researchers who work in this in this field, you know, at this university in the Robinson Research Institute, the idea that um, fetuses can be exposed to famine, for example, so what a woman eats during pregnancy can have an impact on the, the fetal growth, development of those things that Rick talked about and so things like low birth weight in particular mm-hmm. were being correlated with the incidence of chronic disease in adult life and I remember mm-hmm. the first time mm-hmm. I heard this and I thought so hang on hang on backtrack a bit you're telling me that what a woman eats during pregnancy that maternal diet is like an exposure uh, a trauma if you like to the fetus which has an effect on the adult mm-hmm. when this person grows up and mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking that's the most determinist thing I've ever heard and with another colleague we're another anthropologist we're trying to sort of grapple with this particular our particular understanding of biology and so I asked my colleagues who work in Dohad and life sciences I said 
this is the value, I think, of working in trusted interdisciplinary spaces. You can mm -hmm. sit down with people and say, these are the problems I have with this theory. What can I read? What can you direct me to to help understand this more broadly to hone my critique? And mm -hmm. so uh, fantastic colleagues who gave me some of the original papers that David Barker had written about Dohad, and he's an epidemiologist who comes from Southampton in the UK. And he was very clearly pointing to the impacts of the environment on people in his study. So these were epidemiological studies, so by association, around poverty, class, place, women's working lives, so women working in the cotton mills in Lancashire, and how all of these environmental impacts were part of that context mm. uh, of impacting the fetus. So it wasn't, you know, we also ran this critique that it's, you know, please don't blame the women and you know Sarah Richardson mm -hmm. and others have that lovely paper mm -hmm. you know don't blame the mother and we were also arguing that don't blame women for poor diets actually the value of developmental origins and epigenetics is to actually look at the context the ways in which environments influence and shape bodies and so as a social anthropologist for me what was very exciting was having been trained in a discipline which was very social in its orientation to actually acknowledge and accommodate and enfold the biological into our understandings. And it, mm -hmm. I was trying to think, what would Boudou say about this in terms of habitus? And so I was thinking, you know, I like to imagine, perhaps naively, if he were alive, that he might coin the phrase biohabitus, that it's mm -hmm. about the enfolding of our environments into our bodies and it's sort of like that recursive relationship which we have with our environments and our relationships. And so for me that was mm. that was very exciting. Mm. Epigenetics, it actually enables those molecular processes to be identified because of the technology. So that's pushed that further. But in a, in a roundabout way, for me it was, you know, theoretically it was very exciting to be at that cross-face or sort of interstitial space of thinking about these health issues you know so for example my work around obesity you can't just focus on the social aspects of this there are biological material implications mm -hmm. so how do we integrate mm -hmm. this into our thinking how do we collaborate productively and so we have to rethink our theories we mm -hmm. have to acknowledge there are new ways to think about this and, and new methods that we need to develop so mm -hmm. that's been an, a very exciting space to collaborate in to to be in. That's a long-winded sort of, a little back, little back history, um, but certainly from my point of view about my interest around obesity and bodies mm -hmm. coming through mm -hmm. developmental origins into epigenetics. And, mm -hmm. you know, other anthropologists are doing really interesting work in epigenetics around mm -hmm. the brain and neurodevelopment and autism and, and so forth, as well as, you know, into food and nutrition, Hannah Landegger's work, metabolism, mm -hmm. Martine Lepay. Loads of people. Yeah. yeah. Do either of you find that, at least theoretically, maybe that it's overlapping with, say, for instance, Stacey Lamo's work on transcorporeality? Is that, I mean, when you started talking about biohabitus, transcorporeality came into my brain as something that would be different but similar. Yeah, yeah. So I think there are some overlapping or congruent theories which play into epigenetics or developmental origins. So it's any of those theoreticians or scholars or thinkers or people who are trying to get beyond those binaries, mm -hmm. uh, those very worn, tired binaries, which still have effect and impact 
uh, and reality, of course, but there's a whole history, you know, Bruno Latour and mm-hmm. Tim Ingold, the New Materialists, uh, mm-hmm. Karen Barad, you know, there's a, mm-hmm. actually quite a large body of scholars who are interested in coming at these sorts of Mm-hmm. theoretical concepts we're trying to grapple with, but from different areas, whether it's from anthropology or whether it's from physics or, you know, th- there are some very interesting people who do have biology training, but also with the social science mm-hmm. or humanities training, you know, ecofeminism mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So I think we're mm-hmm. all sort of circling around mm-hmm. these central ideas, queer theory, gender mm-hmm. theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, I totally agree. Mm. Those threads, Stacey Lemos, mm. how it was the first sort of bit of that material feminist sort of move for me was so related to what I was seeing happening in epigenetics, right? Mm-hmm. Queer ecologies, yeah. of course, like Megan mm. and I were talking earlier about mm. what's new about new materialisms, right? Mm. I mean, there's long-standing work in black feminism, indigenous feminism, right? Yeah. Mm. Ecofeminism mm-hmm. and all these other movements who have been thinking about the sort of new ways to think across nature and culture and to dissolve Mm -hmm. these binaries Mm -hmm. that Megan is pointing to, right? Mm -hmm. So, yes, and I want to dovetail that back to something that Megan Mm -hmm. said earlier about epigenetics not being new, right? These conversations have been longstanding. These Mm -hmm. questions about how we put the body uh, and culture back together have been longstanding. Epigenetics sort of core idea that bodies are bodies in context is not necessarily new, Mm -hmm. but the way we're able to demonstrate, right, as Karen Barad says, right down to the molecules of our being, Right, epigenetics, I feel like, delivers on that piece of new materialist theory mm. uh, in the ways in which social processes are impacting us at the most infinitesimal <laughs> level, right? Yeah. 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 And again, do you think, Rick, then, uh-huh. is it the technologies that enable that to happen that allow mm-hmm. new materialism to say something new because it's the molecular level or not? I don't know if it's saying something new. Like, I don't necessarily buy that. I think there are multiple ways to grab on, you know, as, a, mm. as an anthropologist who mm. does epigenetics but is also working mm. in the theoretical space. There are multiple ways in which we can grab on to the body. Science does not get to own, like, mm-hmm, discourses mm-hmm. of nature, right? Mm-hmm. So epigenetics, mm-hmm. to me, does not trump yeah. what material feminists or indigenous yeah, feminists, black feminists, yeah. queer ecologists yeah, yeah. have been saying. Um, but it does, I don't know, I mean, even, it does hold this kind of power, Right. So Um, could you argue that it's given a visibility through that technology? Yeah, the genome has this kind of authority and this kind of Mm. affect on Mm. people in a way that I think resonates differently in the public, whether we like that authority of science or not, whether we think that science owns that discourse. It does have this powerful emotional Mm -hmm. effect on people, right? And Mm. sort of speaking to a different level. But I mean... I came at epigenetics slightly differently than Megan because Mm. to me, epigenetics was like this trap door. I was like, finally, we can get out of this loop of genetic determinism, Mm -hmm. right? Finally, Mm -hmm. we can get out of this idea of seeing racial health disparities as being genetic, Mm. right? And we Mm -hmm. can talk about inequality and environmental racism and like these ecologies that are, you know, of power that are influencing how people live and die. Mm. I was so enamored as a way theoretically and scientifically to bring these conversations together and then slowly realize the ways in which epigenetics can be this discourse, just this other way of thinking deterministically about the impact of environment. You see this reaches kind of like absurd zenith in behavioral epigenomics where people are talking about how people's behavior is an outcome of their mm-hmm. early lifehood, a very predictive and very essentialist outcome, deterministic outcome of their early lifehood experience. And I find that very troubling. So I think epigenetics has, there's epigenetic hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but maybe too much epigenetic hype, yeah. as Negan has mm-hmm. pointed out too. Yeah, yeah. Certainly we've argued mm-hmm. in our publications, mm-hmm. uh, Emma Caval and Maurizio Maloney and I, that epigenetics, there is hope and hype. Mm-hmm. But the hope comes because epigenetics has the 
possibility of reversal if you're changing people's environments, there's a potential for those health mm-hmm. impacts or those those molecular impacts to be reversed. So that reversal, mm-hmm. I think, is very important for the ways in which epigenetics is picked up uh, and I had um, in public discourse because hope is very important mm-hmm. for Indigenous communities rather than this sort of idea that you're bio-socially damaged and that's the language which is used so where do you go from there you need to have that hope to bring people together to continue Mm. and i don't think we've quite reached the hope part of it in epigenetics right we're able to demonstrate power's impact on the body at a molecular level but how do we answer the yeah yeah how we come out of this Mm -hmm. so because I don't have a training like you do in genetics, but I've been to a lot of genetics conferences and DOHA conferences and I treat them ethnographically. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, it's a foreign language to me when I first started. I'm much more comfortable now in, in those spaces. But at some of those conferences where Indigenous scholars and scientists are talking, I was very struck by the ways in which you know, they're talking about epigenetics and saying, well, this, of course, is something we've known for a very long time. You white scientists are just catching up to what we know. Yeah, so they're, they're doing this really lovely reversal of knowledge there to mm-hmm. actually say, well, just because it's a Western mm-hmm. science, don't think you've got all the answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, of course, right. I mean, yeah, where I have to go back to the communities that are suffering the health inequalities mm-hmm. that led me to this work in the first place. Mm-hmm. I were to sit down at the table with my mother and say, hey, mom, we're sick because... Uh, we've been poor historically. Mm. Her answer to me would be, duh. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, 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 they yeah. already know, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, the point, I mean, all of these communities who have faced historical trauma, who have mm-hmm. faced marginalization at the hands of colonization, right, are intimately aware, right, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the sort of conditions of their everyday living and dying is a result yeah. of this kind of inequality, yeah. right? Epigenetics is not adding mm-hmm. something new to that, right? Yep. And so the reason why I do epigenetics is not because I think, like, it's offering something new. Rather, I am translating our community's knowledge, right, the knowledge of my own ancestors, mm-hmm. the knowledge of marginalized communities, indigenous communities, queer communities with which I work closely, right? translating our community knowledge into a language of power that can be uh, effective at making actual policy changes and one that which the people who are holding the authority mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. relate, right? Mm-hmm. So translating that knowledge rather than taking an approach that is like disseminating scientific knowledge yeah, to these yeah. communities, mm-hmm. reversing mm-hmm. that arrow. Mm-hmm. So I think it's also part mm-hmm. of your question, Matt, you know, there's the hope and the hype mm-hmm. and there's also the harm. Mm-hmm. And so we're very mm-hmm. mindful, anthropologists working in this space are very mindful of the ways in which discourses like epigenetics can be taken and run with because, you know, as Maurizio argues around a soft eugenics, there is a history of the ways Mm -hmm. in which this type of damage can be wielded in order to say, well, if people are damaged in this way, then what can we do? So it's used in those essentialist, those Mm -hmm. biologically essentialist ways which can be Mm -hmm. such dangerous territory to be Mm. wading into. So... Mm. Part of our, our interest, I think, in the epigenetics and DOHAD is exploring how these concepts are being used politically, strategically, mm-hmm. in amongst all of those ongoing power relationships. Mm-hmm. And they are being used strategically is, is certainly what we've found in some of our preliminary mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of brings me to the next question, which was about the response of communities, both scientific communities of practice or indigenous communities, to knowledge about epigenetics. I mean, you kind of touched on it that like this isn't new knowledge for them in some ways, but in some sort of techno-scientific way it might be. And and what is the response to potentially 
the power that is there with that kind of mm. formation of knowledge. It's mixed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's very mixed. It's yeah. mixed. So mm -hmm. we've we've begun some research where we've been working with indigenous scientists and non-indigenous scientists who work in these fields mm -hmm. to to explore some of those some of those questions and in our preliminary work so I'm being very cautious here because we haven't thrown ourselves into this space but we have done some preliminary work and certainly from our analysis of public discourse public policy around epigenetics and dohad and so what's available in the literature and sort of publicly is that there are very serious cautions mm -hmm. and wisely so that even though there's a usefulness and acknowledgement of the power of epigenetics that there is caution so epigenetics might not be the word that some indigenous people might use but they would be more comfortable with using words like historical trauma mm -hmm. so situating it within the history and politics of of their experiences of that history so historical trauma, I hear that more than the word epigenetics. Mm -hmm. There's a, still quite a lot of caution about anything that's got genetics in it, and mm -hmm. again, understandably so. Mm -hmm. But I think the responses are mixed, and they're also very cautious. Mm -hmm. And of course, you'd expect that there'd be conflict in certainly uh, Indigenous communities about how they would respond to epigenetics. So... I think my short answer is it's mixed. Mm -hmm. I think it's mixed within the context of North America, too. Like You mm -hmm. see very different responses to this. On the one hand, like there is this, we use this framework in North America as well as historical trauma, and that's definitely been this sort of mm -hmm. theoretical framing around which epigenetics has been brought into the conversation within sort of thinking around indigenous histories mm -hmm. um, and colonization in North America. And there's a mixed response with how epigenetics has been brought into historical trauma frameworks there too. On the one hand, there is this sense that it offers a way for us to translate what we know about our own lives and experience, what we know about the ongoing mm. impacts of colonization that we still live with to this day. And this is a way to demonstrate that to the people in a language of power that can be recognized in a different way. And on the other hand, there is this concern about stigma and biological damage and this sort of like biological marking of the body as something that has emerged as a consequence of trauma, right? And I, given the sort of history of abuse and the history of the power imbalance that's happened between genetic researchers and indigenous communities in, in the U.S. And Australia. And Australia as well, yep. right? Then that kind of concern is completely leg legitimate. Mm. I mean... Well, not that far from the completion of the Human Genome Project. I mean, that's less than two decades mm. ago. And the rhetoric was very similar. We're going to unlock the secrets of disease. We're going to be able to demonstrate why people get sick. We're going to be able to have a precision medicine model that works from genomics and personal genomics in a way that offers healing and in a way that can address the sort of systemic inequalities that we see in our society. We have not delivered. We're 20 years mm. from those promises, and we have not delivered on the sort of hope post-genomic hope. We're not at a place where geneticists were able to sort of deliver on that promise in terms of healing. And so, like, I think there's reason to still be skeptical. Like, yes. it's the same types of rhetoric around mm -hmm. epigenetics. Mm -hmm. I do think epigenetics approaches the problem differently, but I think there's nonetheless reason to be skeptical about mm -hmm. the extent to which, A, epigenetics can demonstrate the things that we wish it to demonstrate. <laughs> and then there's a second question around what happens when we have evidence that, that epigenetic marks have resulted from mm -hmm. historical trauma mm -hmm. in terms of the intervention, right? It's not just enough to show 
that epigenetic marks have occurred as a consequence mm. of historical processes. How do you then address... Yeah. So historically, right? what are the mm-hmm. examples that we could use to say if a population has been identified mm-hmm. through these sorts of historical mm-hmm. colonising forces, what examples do we have that lead us to be less sceptical about what can be done in more positive ways? With genomics? With epigenetics or DOHEAD, I guess that's my question. What what examples do we have where governments are acting positively to support populations mm-hmm. of people? And I guess I'm just throwing that in there mm-hmm. to the scepticism, I think, is mm-hmm. really what we should be putting mm-hmm. bright lights around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're further ahead on that question, mm-hmm. I think, in Australia than we are mm-hmm. in the US, right? I can't point to an example mm-hmm. yet. I mean, we're still figuring that out. I mean, there are communities that are interested. There are projects that are underway in the US looking mm-hmm. at Indian removal, looking at boarding mm-hmm. schools, looking at, yeah, various processes mm-hmm. that relate to Indigenous people's experience of colonization in the US. But we're in the very initial stages of kind of seeing that work. There, are, I can yeah. point to the work of Amy Bombay, to Catherine mm-hmm, Crocker, mm-hmm. people who are Indigenous mm-hmm, scientists mm-hmm. themselves who are using epigenetics in a way that examines historical trauma. Yeah. But we're still, I feel like, at the very beginning of yes. yeah. kind of understanding how this can be applied and what the outcomes will be. Yeah. There yeah. is hope. I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, I'm an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> too, but I'm, I'm also, yeah, I think yeah. as you, Rick, uh-huh. we're very mindful of the uh-huh. dangers the pitfalls of the multiple Mm -hmm. strands that reach out Mm -hmm. from this in terms of what we know about biopolitics Mm -hmm. and governance of populations. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a history there which can be easily repeated. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I'm convinced of certain parts of this. I'm convinced we can link epigenetic marks to colonial history. Like, I've seen that in my own work. The question is, what does it mean? Mm. (laughs) What does it mean and what do we do about it, right? How Mm. do we deliver on health, the promise of health? Is it really kind of a distinct... Exactly. It's a distinct Mm. question. And what do epigenetic marks even mean when it comes to understanding how that relates to health outcomes Mm -hmm. is a big Mm. open question in epigenetics, right? So just identifying an epigenetic mark that relates to a stress response Mm. is not in itself a health intervention, right? So to me, delivering on the promise of environmental and social justice, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the sort of jump from epigenetic evidence to that is not clear to me yet. So the danger is Mm -hmm. even if some interventions are made, that they'll be very narrow and Mm -hmm. focused within a neoliberal framework of the individual changing behaviours rather than the social supports which Mm -hmm. we would like to see which are around social justice. So, you know, addressing fundamental things like poverty, for example, or access Mm -hmm. to education, Mm That's in my view. That is the gold standard for me of, mm-hmm. of what an intervention could be. But um, mm. unfortunately, I don't see much of that happening in terms of the wider policy or mm-hmm. government mm-hmm. action. Given that we are sort of at the nascent stages of a lot of this research, what do you see as some of the contrast between the North American and the Australian sort of context for this kind of research so far? It feels like the experience of colonization is very different, and so... Is there like differences in how the science is rolling out or how social scientists are interpreting these things? Yeah, I mean, you're right to point to the fact that these are different histories of colonization. Mm -hmm. But I'm struck just being in Australia and meeting with Indigenous researchers there, how much history we actually share in common because settler colonialism may not always play out the same way, but it has echoes across colonial spaces. So thinking about residential schools in the U.S. and Canada Mm -hmm. versus the stolen generations in Australia, right? There are these echoes of similar colonial policies that might have impacted health Maybe not in the exact same way and maybe not with the exact same history, but it's related. I, as a researcher in the U.S., I've often looked to Australia and New Zealand as places where the process of 
collaboration and reciprocity and uh, sort of indigenous-led science, right, that doesn't prioritize indigenous knowledge versus science, mm-hmm. uh, but brings them together in a more productive way, you're really leading that in ways that we don't see as much in North America. So that we look to, for example, Maui Hudson's guidelines on genetic mm-hmm. research with Aboriginal indigenous communities. We've worked towards that in the U.S., so we're working through the summer internship uh, for Indigenous Peoples and Genomics, which is now an international sort of gathering of Indigenous scientists and community members and elders and non-Indigenous scientists and non-Indigenous social scientists mm-hmm. to come together to try to put together a model of how science can operate better and operate better in relation to Indigenous knowledge about their own history and experience of colonialism and to bring genetics sort of under the purview of Indigenous interests, right, Indigenous sovereignty. Mm. So we're having those conversations in the U.S. and Canada and beginning in Mexico as well, but I feel like I'm experiencing here, mm. even been here for a few days, the ways in which uh, these frameworks are underway already in Australia and New Zealand, right? Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. not so sure. Mm-hmm. I, I actually would look to Canada. Uh, uh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> rather than Australia. But, of course, the workshop that you're talking about, the SING workshop, has just been held in Australia for the first time, you know, very successfully, with Indigenous participants learning about genomics and epigenetics. So my perception is that we're a little bit behind but fast catching up. Mm-hmm. And certainly there are lots of interesting Indigenous research groups who are doing work around historical trauma, Mm -hmm. developmental origins and epigenetics. And, you know, they have a platform in national and international Mm -hmm. conferences that I go to. And that, I think, is fantastic Mm -hmm. to see. And conversely, the non-Indigenous scientists at those conferences are also having conversations. Mm -hmm. So I see that reciprocity happening more. And I think there's a lot of potential for that to grow Still, some of these streams seem to be quite siloed. We'll have a stream on Indigenous health rather than integrating it. So it's a little bit like theoretically that the social or the biological categories still remain in their rooms, mm-hmm. so to speak. But They might be sharing the same house, but they're still in the same rooms. Mm-hmm. I think I'd like to see that further move to see them sharing a hallway <laughs> and a kitchen, mm-hmm. if you get the metaphor. Um, yeah. I think that is coming. I can see that coming, those conversations. And certainly at Doha conferences explicitly there are calls for what can Dohead learn from, they call it Indigenous wisdom, I think it's Indigenous science, what can these sciences learn from each other, mm-hmm. looking at the, not just the differences, but the similarities and differences together. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think we have a growing history of that in the mm-hmm. US, I want like maybe we can look to the best in each other in terms of <laughs> yeah, like finding, so. finding inspiration. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we have a history, especially in the Southwest, mm-hmm. or, I mean, in other, other places throughout North America, but in the Southwest in particular, of ways in which Indigenous people uh, have responded to sort of historical abuses of genetic research, right? And so building capacity within tribes, like after the Havasupai mm-hmm. case in the mm-hmm. U.S., which was where ASU researchers we're looking at sort of can we identify a genetic cause for the disproportionate rates of diabetes that mm-hmm, we see in the mm-hmm. Havasupai. So the Havasupai yep. live in Arizona, or, uh, in the region of the Grand Canyon. Yep. And subsequently, the geneticists use those samples without consent of the tribes for research into peopling of the Americas mm-hmm. and then research into like disproportionate rates of schizophrenia mm-hmm. and these other issues that the tribes had no knowledge of and when they did find out, found very stigmatizing. Mm-hmm. So there was a lawsuit, there was return of samples, there was financial restitution for tribes as a result of that lawsuit uh, of of ASU. And 
since then, there's been genetic moratoriums in the Southwest, uh, for the, in the Navajo, for example, who said we don't want genetic research from outsiders because of these abuses. In this move, you see dozens, if not hundreds, of Navajo scientists now who are doing this research themselves on their terms, right? So we do have like mm-hmm. a couple of, well, more than a couple of decades of history of trying to figure out how to address these power imbalances and bring genetics under the purview of indigenous knowledge. Sing, to me, is Mm -hmm. an outgrowth of these types of histories and conversations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly happening in Australia. Yeah. Uh, Nicer, but it's certainly happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess speaking of bringing people into the same corridor, I'm interested in using Robin Wall Kimmerer's analogy of walking with one foot in indigenous wisdom and one foot in scientific knowledge. And just moving further from that, I'm wondering if either of you have any insights into how people are doing that or how either of you are managing to do that. I imagine it's quite tricky. It is. I will say so. There's. I will point to sort of multiple threads of people who are sort of pushing against the way. I mean, we talked about this earlier, the siloing effect that happens in the academy. There are multiple threads who are pushing against the way that knowledge gets compartmentalized in the academy, both in indigenous studies, but also in queer and feminist mm-hmm. studies, sort of questioning within queer theory, I'll point to that explicitly, the ways in which the divides between the natural sciences and the humanities reflect a gender divide between mind, body, culture, nature, mm-hmm. all of these things, right? And that is not the way that many indigenous people move through the world or understand knowledge. Uh, that is not how queer people necessarily make knowledge either. So there's these sort of multiple pushes that we see in the academy to sort of question the bifurcation of knowledge systems and to move through the world in a way that reflects our own desires and our own knowledges, that rather than following the sort of disciplinary threads, follow the question to all of the pieces that are required to answer a particular question, right? So Robin Wall Kimmerer's experience of being an indigenous ecologist, an indigenous botanist, right, whose experience in college reflects very strongly that disciplining, that pruning, that castigation that Mm -hmm. says you can't be a whole person in the lab, you can't bring theories of power, you can't bring uh, indigenous knowledge that has no place in the science lab because this is, you know, objective. And by objective, we mean white, colonial, male, heteronormative kinds Mm -hmm. of framings of Mm -hmm. how the research is done. And her journey reflects this sort of way in which trying to find a way for indigenous, to bring her whole self into the work, right? Where indigenous, her indigenous knowledge as an indigenous woman and her training as an ecologist can cohabitate. So, I mean, that book is mind-blowing. I cry every single time I read it. As do I. It's so good (laughs) because she has these case studies where she's actually following that through. And, you know, not as an Indigenous person, but there is a parallel movement among queer scholars that is doing a very Mm -hmm. similar project, right? We don't we press against the ways in which mm-hmm. the heteronormativity of science, the implicit masculinity of science, its disconnection and sort of hierarchical ways in which it sets itself above other ways of knowing, right? This is a very patriarchal way. We push against that because our experience of moving through the academy requires us to move through these sort of disparate intellectual spaces, right? So we, at a fundamental level, reject the kinds of way in which academic knowledge creation has been binarized, right? I don't know if that answers your question. Mm. I think Helen Varan would call that braiding sort of Mm post-colonial moments. So it's not this nice interweaving. Mm -hmm. It is explicitly about the power relations and conflict. You know, she calls it the, the abutting and the conflict that comes with that sort of Braiding, and it mm-hmm. is it is explicitly acknowledging the power relationships, which mm-hmm. are just part and parcel of that mm-hmm. conceptual apparatus. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not easy, but I feel like marginalized communities are better 
in my experience, are better able to navigate those mm-hmm. contradictions. Mm-hmm. It's, there is no contradiction. Mm-hmm. There is power, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's difficult to yeah. navigate yeah. the way in which those power relations mm-hmm. have been set up in the academy. But to me, questions of in, of power, questions of inequality are not, and theories of power that are at, uh, accessing those types of questions are not distinct from questions of the body, right? Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. things are so related mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And that's also one of the other things we've been discussing is what does epigenetics or mm-hmm. developmental origins, what does this do for our theories of embodiment? Mm-hmm. Because it does push against those and ask us to think slightly differently about how that theoretical train is going. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think people have assumed a natural fit between epigenetics and theories of embodiment, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's always played out in ways that make total sense yep. or that mm-hmm. are fully cognizant of what embodiment is. Yeah, or right? fully cognizant mm-hmm. of the agentive capacities mm-hmm. of epigenetics, for example, mm-hmm. if you take it the other way, mm-hmm. that it's not that it's not the body just being marked, as you were mm-hmm. saying, as you know, this mm-hmm. passive marking. It's not the inscription. Mm-hmm. It is the agentive capacities mm-hmm. of the body. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think in medical anthropology, at least in the context of North America, we see epigenetics being enfolded into a framework in which, yeah, as Megan mm-hmm. was saying, the body becomes this, like, passive recipient of culture, and it's being marked unagentively, right, mm-hmm. by all of these events that it's experiencing, right? And so even though we're using theories of embodiment, to explain how racial health disparities or how class and gender biological disparities emerge, we're doing that in a framework that strips the bodies of a gentle potential mm-hmm. that if you use it as this marked thing rather than, and really if you're thinking from a molecular biological mm-hmm. perspective, the mark, the epigenetic mark itself is the body's response mm. to... The mark is agentive. The mark itself is agentive, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. not this passive way in which culture is marking the body it's the yeah, body yeah. responding mm-hmm. to culture mm-hmm. right? which brings it's us back to like karen barad's work yeah, and this yeah. kind of thing yeah. Uh-huh. yeah yeah agential realism and is where we need to go with mm-hmm. epigenetic work i mean that's mm-hmm. i find that theory so useful mm-hmm. in having a better picture of what's actually mm-hmm. happening molecularly mm-hmm. and i mean embodiment too is thinking about reciprocity yeah, yeah, in a yeah. way that is not the body being just marked yeah. by um, by culture passively, right? Yeah, yeah. It is more agentive. Absolutely. But, mm-hmm. but it does ask us, I think, to push that a little bit further mm-hmm. to where we are theoretically. Mm-hmm. And just thinking, mm-hmm. Matt, about your questions about the Indigenous scholars I speak to and health workers who are interested in epigenetics or developmental origins, even though they might not use the word epigenetics, they're very interested in the things which epigenetics throws up, like changes to... Uh, or, or Indigenous understandings of temporality and space and Mm -hmm. kinship and relatedness Mm -hmm. and being in the world. Epigenetics actually allows a lot of that openness and porosity between the Mm -hmm. worlds which have been historically, in Western Mm -hmm. ways, bounded. Mm -hmm. It aligns with some of that that being in the world. So that's also one of the ways in which they're attracted to that science, Mm -hmm. recognising that it's a different science, but... Again, why, the, why some scholars, Indigenous scholars are saying, well, we've known all of this, you're just mm-hmm. taking your time to catch up. Mm-hmm. We've known this for much longer. I think that that's yeah. accurate. Yeah. 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 So I'm curious what ethnographic or anthropological research with epigenetics looks like, like on mm-hmm. a sort of more day-to-day <laughs> yeah, yeah. methodological kind yeah. of level. Like what that's does your work question, look like? Because it's a thorny question, and I certainly I think you will answer this differently, but as a social anthropologist in training, 
methodologically, how do you do this work? And I collaborate with DOHAD scientists. And so how do we think about our methods differently to incorporate the, the ways in which environment bodies, places, biology interact? Mm -hmm. Because our methods are not up to scratch in terms of doing that. So across the last five years at least, I've been looking for ways that social anthropologists have actually attempted to address that question and so I, I was very excited to meet and hear about Elizabeth Roberts' work mm -hmm. in the US so she's working in Mexico City on a large project called Element which is a very interdisciplinary project but in Mexico City in the areas that she's working in there are high exposures to lead and lead is, is very toxic and so this is an exposure to the body which has mm -hmm. impacts for generations for women who are pregnant and for generations in those communities. Mm -hmm. It's quite an impoverished community. And so Elizabeth is working with these teams, nutting out how to methodologically work together. And she's talked about this at conferences, for the fantastic research that she's doing of bridging the social and biological through what she calls a bioethnographic approach and putting forward really valuable information. So, for example, in her work, so ethnographic work that she's doing in these communities in people's homes, she's looking at all of the minutiae of everyday details, which we love to work with as ethnographers. And, you know, she noticed that the plates in which were being used in many of the households, the special plates, were plates which were glazed with a lead glaze mm. and these plates often had status in the families because they were passed on you know mm -hmm. through generations from grandmothers to mothers to daughters and the food which was eaten on these plates was tastier culturally attributed as more tasty food so these are very special plates in families, but these are plates which are emblazoned with this lead. And so that sort of detail is beautiful ethnographic detail, which you can then contribute to these studies. But she's also gone on mm -hmm. further to develop this bioethnographic approach. So for me, that is a really exciting way in which anthropologists and life scientists have started to work together. And certainly new work, which Sarah Gibbon and others are working with looking at how birth cohorts are constructed and how anthropologists can can come into these birth cohorts and similarly contribute through ethnographic work and attention to you know all of the social determinants of health around that which may not be captured in birth cohorts you know the difficulty is of course the longitudinal you know our funding regimes are just so short and so it's very difficult to establish generate and build these bioethnographic approaches but really i think that's in a very exciting space to be at if you're looking at that sort of data i have nothing that was beautiful <laughs> <laughs> and i know there are other people who are also trying to do this similar work so Elizabeth mm. is the person who I who I know, but you know, in mm. respect of other people doing that work, I'm mm. homage to them. So I guess by way of wrapping up, how does this research fit in the broader sort of anthropological canon or scope, for lack of a better word? And how do you see uh, anthropology as being relevant to these discussions and relevant today more generally? So I, I think, you know, I mean, we touched on this a bit earlier. How does epigenetics sort of fit into anthropology? I mean, we've had long-standing, long-standing since the 80s and 90s, right, discussions around embodiment and phenomenology and the bodies in context, right? I feel like epigenetics, at least as anthropologists have used it, has been an extension of that thinking, right? So it's, mm -hmm. as we've said earlier, it's just sort of come back to that idea, right? It's not necessarily 
a totally new conversation. It's a new set of methods to demonstrate, perhaps in a slightly different way, some of the same conversations we've been having for mm-hmm. decades, right? In, in anthropology, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. I mean, at least that's how we are fitting it in in our own work. We're thinking about the ways in which the body is responding to social processes in ways that anthropologists, I feel mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. have a long history of thinking about. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And certainly in our work, we feel quite strongly that looking at the ways mm-hmm. in which discourses around epigenetics are being mm-hmm. used in a variety of contexts, in policy, in public media, mm-hmm. in Indigenous communities, by Indigenous people. It's really important that anthropological knowledge, Indigenous knowledge, is then put forward to people making those policies mm-hmm. before it actually gets cemented into those sorts of policies. Mm-hmm. We think it's really important to have that understanding and information about those varied discourses before you know before the horses run Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. we think that's very important Mm -hmm. to have those have those understandings because it is popular and it is fashionable and people are making these statements for Mm -hmm. example that you are what your grandmother ate or you know there's a lot of (laughs) blame attended to women and you know there's this long history about women's reproductive lives and the Mm -hmm. intervention in women's bodies Mm -hmm. and that's exactly the sort of intervention that we would like to make as anthropologists to say that's a very narrow framing of what's happening here and let's not repeat those sorts of Mm -hmm. discourses so I think we have that political voice and action to actually intervene in those sorts of discursive debates which you see in popular media you you see that all the time and again I think we can Mm -hmm. intervene in some of those very racist discourses around populations being damaged or Mm -hmm. lazy so that I think we have a very important political platform to intervene Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah and epigenetics is the play you're right it has all this sort of cachet it's the hot Mm -hmm. topic right Mm -hmm. now but like I think there's no yeah even with the genome itself right the genome itself the de- genetic variation itself is beholden there's an, it's beholden to social processes right epigenetics is not the sort of unique way at which culture and the body meet right it's one way that we can get into all of these there's no level of the body that is not reshaped by social there's not a body in culture that is not reshaped by social processes political processes so epigenetics to me is where the conversation is right now mm-hmm. but we I don't want to let go of the genetic variation, too. To me, this is a doorway to talking about all the other ways in which the, the body is beholden to social yeah. processes right down to the genome itself. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the words which are associated with epigenetics around mm-hmm. intergenerational transmission, mm-hmm. uh, we need to be very careful mm-hmm. about that because the science is so uncertain. Mm-hmm. But again, in public discourse, you see the ways in which metaphorically this gets mm-hmm. run out. And so, yeah, the uncertainty and the scepticism, I think we have to absolutely hold front and centre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the discourses around inheritance and how inheritance mm-hmm. happened to me have to be widened beyond the genome, Yeah. period, right? Mm-hmm. Thinking mm-hmm. about all the ways in which we inherit bodily, materially, socially, politically, right? Mm-hmm. Beyond what the genetic and the epigenetic can say. Mm-hmm. So in some senses, it's about sort of trying to put the brakes on a little bit and, yeah, have some sort of social science critique or intervention mm-hmm. before it does run away and become mm-hmm. policy and... Yeah, those kinds of things. I think also for our discipline, it also does open up mm-hmm. uh, discussions, theoretical discussions. So I think it contributes in that way. I think it mm-hmm. opens up some really lively, mm-hmm. fruitful discussions around you know how we deal with those dichotomies and mm-hmm. you know the ecologies and the, the queer bending that <laughs> that we're interested in doing mm-hmm. like it also has a role there theoretically to push the discipline. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Thanks so much for that really great conversation. I think we'll wrap it up there. So, 
Yeah, thanks, Rick, and thanks, Megan. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Thank yeah. you for having us. I'd like to acknowledge the support of the Robinson Research Institute, the Fagel Centre for Research on Gender and the Faculty of Arts at the University of Adelaide, and also my co-investigators Emma Koval and Maurizio Maloney at Deakin University for their help in bringing Rick to Australia and to the University of Adelaide. In particular, I'd like to thank the intellectual nourishment I've had from Vivian Moore, Michael Davies and Tanya Zivkovic and to all my collaborators in the Nutria Collab. You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Maithili Maher and Matt Barlow and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about us, find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroConvo. And don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform. So, what do we have for lunch? I had some risotto balls. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.